Chapter 20, Slanderous Gossip. At this point, I feel I must address the various items of slanderous gossip that have been going the rounds for the past two or three hundred thousand years. These stories are completely untrue. Many have said that there's no smoke without fire, but that is a fa fatuous argument. We've all heard rumours that later proved to be entirely groundless, and so it is with these, ru these rumours about me. The charges concern my sexual conduct. It is alleged, for instance, that I slept with Amphinomus, the politest of the suitors. The songs say I found his conversation agreeable or more agreeable than that of the others. And this is true. But it's a long jump from there to, into bed. It's also true that I led the suitors on and made private promises to them. But this was a matter of policy. Among other things... I used my supposed encouragement to extract expensive gifts from them, scant return for everything they'd eaten and wasted. And I draw your attention to the fact that Odysseus himself witnessed and approved of my action. The more outrageous versions have it that I slept with all of the suitors, one after another, over a hundred of them, and then gave birth to the great god Pan, who could believe such a monstrous tale some songs aren't worth the breath expended on them. Various commentators have cited my mother-in-law, Antislia, who said nothing about the suitors when Odysseus spoke to her spirit on the island of the dead. Her silence is taken as proof. If she'd mentioned the suitors at all, they say she would have had to mention my infidelity as well. Maybe she did mean to plant a toxic seed in the mind of Odysseus, but you already know about her attitude towards me. It would have been her final acid touch. Others have noted the fact that I did not dismiss or punish the 12 impudent maids or shut them up in an outbuilding to grind corn, so I must have, in, have been indulging in some kind of sluttery myself, but I have explained all of that. A more serious charge is that Odysseus didn't reveal himself to me when he first returned. He distrusted me it is said, and wanted to make sure I wasn't having orgies in the palace. But the real reason was that he was afraid I would cry tears of joy and thus give him away. Similarly, he had me locked in the women's quarters with the rest of the women when he was slaughtering the suitors, and he relied on Eurystheus' help, not mine. But he knew me well, my tender heart, my habit of dissolving into tears and falling down to thresh on thresholds. He simply didn't want to expose me to dangers and disagreeable sights. Surely that is the obvious explanation for his behaviour. If my husband had learned of the slanders during our lifetimes, he certainly would have ripped out a few tongues, but there's no sense of brooding over lost opportunities. Chapter 21. The Chorus Line. The Perils of Penelope. A Drama. Presented by the Maids. Prologue, spoken by Melantho of the Pretty Cheeks. As we approach the climax, grim and gory, let us just say there is another story, or several, as benefits of goddess rumour, who sometimes in a good or else bad humour. Word has it that Penelope the Pretty was, when it came to sex, no shrinking sissy. Some said with Amphinomius she was sleeping, masking her lust with gales of moans and weeping. Others, that each and every brisk contender, by turns did have the fortune to upend her. 
by which promiscuous acts the goat god Pan was the, then conceived, or so the fable ran. The truth, dear auditors, is seldom certain, but let us take a peek behind the curtain. Eurislia, played by a maid. Dear child, I fear you are undone. Alack, the master has returned. That's right, he's back. Penelope, played by a maid. I knew him as he walked here from afar, by his short legs. Eurislia, and I, his long scar. Penelope, and now, dear nurse, the fat is in the fire. He'll chop me up for tending my desire. While he was pleasuring every nymph and beauty, did he think I'd do nothing but my duty? While every girl and goddess he was praising, did he assumed I'd dry up like a raisin? Eurislia, while your famous loom claimed to be threading, in fact you were at work within the bedding, and now there's ample matter for beheading. Penelope, Amphinomius, quick, down the hidden stairs, and I'll sit here and feign great woes and cares. Do up my robe, bind fast my wanton hairs, which of the maids is in on my affairs. Eurislia, only the twelve, my lady, who assisted, know that the suitors you have not resisted. They smuggled lovers in and out all night. They drew the drapes and they held the light. They're privy to your every lawless thrill. They must be silenced or the beans they'll spill. Penelope. Oh then, dear nurse, it's really up to you. To save me and Odysseus's honour too. Because he sucked at you now, your now ancient bust, you're only the one of us he'll trust. Point out those maids as freckless and disloyal. Snatched by the suitors as unlawful spoil. Polluted, shameless, and not fit to be the doting slaves of such a lord as he. Eurislia will stop their mouths by sending them to Hades. He'll string them up as grubby, wicked ladies. Penelope, and I in fame a model wife shall rest. All husbands will look on and think him blessed. But haste, the suitors come to do their wooing. And I, for my part, must begin boohooing. The chorus line in tap dance shoes. Blame it on the maids, those naughty little jades. Hang them high and don't ask why. Blame it on the maids. Blame it on the slaves. The toys of rogues and knaves. Let them dangle, let them strangle. Blame it on the slaves. Blame it on the sluts, those proxy little scuts. We've got the dirt on every skirt. Blame it on the sluts. They all curtsy. Chapter 22, Helen Takes a Bath I was wandering through the Asphodel, musing on past times, when I saw Helen sauntering my way. She was followed by her customary horde of male spirits, all of them twittering with anticipation. She gave them not even a glance, though she was evidently conscious of their presence. She'd always had a pair of invisible antennae that twitched at the nearest whiff of a man. Hello there, little cousin duck. She said to me with her usual affable condescension, I'm not, I'm on my way to take my bath. Care to join me? We're spirits now, Helen, I said with what I'd hoped was a smile. Spirits don't have bodies. They don't get dirty. They have no need of baths. Oh, but my reason for taking a bath was always spiritual, said Helen, opening her lovely eyes very wide. 
I found it so soothing in the midst of all the turmoil. You wouldn't have any idea of how exhausting it is, but having such vast numbers of men quarrelling over you year after year, divine beauty is such a burden. At least you've been spared that. I ignored the sneer. Are you going to take off your spirit robes? I asked. We're all aware of your legendary modesty, Penelope, she replied. I'm sure if you ever were to bathe, you'd keep on keep your own robes on, as I suppose you did in life. Unfortunately, here she smiled, modesty was not among the gifts given to me by laughter loving Aphrodite. I do to bathe I do prefer to bathe without my robes, even in the spirit. That would explain the unusually large crowd of spectators you've attracted, I said somewhat tersely. But is it unusually large? She asked with an innocent lift of her eyebrows. There are always such throngs of these men. I never count them. I do feel that because so many of them have died for me, well, because of me, surely I owe them something in return. If only a peek at what they missed on earth, I said. Desire does not die with the body, said Helen, only the ability to satisfy it. But a glimpse or two does perk them up, the poor lambs. It gives them a reason to live, I said. You're being witty, said Helen. Better late than never, I suppose. My witness, or your bare naked tits and arse, bath treat for the dead, I said. You're such a cynic, said Helen. Just because we're not, you know, anymore, there's no need to be so negative and so, so vulgar. Some of us have been giving nature. Some of us like to contribute what we can to the less fortunate. So you're washing their blood off your hands, I said, figuratively, figuratively speaking, of course, making up for all those mangled corpses. I hadn't realised you were capable of guilt. This bothered her. She gave a tiny frown. Tell me, little duck, how many men did Odysseus butcher because of you? Quite a lot, I said. She knew the exact number. She'd long since satisfied herself that the total was puny compared to the pyramids of corpses laid at her door. It depends on what you call a lot, said Helen, but that's nice. I'm sure you felt more important because of it. Maybe you even felt prettier. She smiled with her mouth only. Well, I'm off now, little duck. I'm sure I'll see you around. Enjoy the asphodel. And she wafted away, followed by her excited entourage. Chapter 23. Odysseus and Telemachus snuff the maids. I slept through the mayhem. How could I have done such things? I suspect Eurystheia put something in the comforting drink she gave me to keep me out of the action and stop me from interfering. Not that I would have been in, any, in the action anyway. Odysseus made sure all women were locked securely into the women's quarter. Eurystheia described the whole thing to me and to anyone else who would listen. First, she said, Odysseus, still in the guise of a beggar, watched while Telemachus set up the twelve axes and then while the suitors fell to string his famous bow. Then he got hold of the bow himself and after stringing it and shooting an arrow through the twelve axes, axes, thus winning me as a bride for the second time, he shot Antinous in the throat, threw off his disguise and made mincemeat of every last one of the suitors. 
first with arrows, then with spears and swords. Telemachus and the two faithful herdsmen helped him. Nevertheless, it was a considerable feat. The suitors had a few spears and swords supplied to them by Melanthius, a treacherous goat herd, but none of his hardware was of any help to them in the end. Eurycleia told me how she and the other women women had cowered near the locked door, listening to the shouts and the sounds of breaking furniture and the groans of the dying. She then described the horror that happened next. Odysseus summoned her and ordered her to point out the maids who had been, as he called it, disloyal. He forced the girls to haul the dead bodies of the suitors into the courtyard, including the bodies of their erstwhile lovers, and to wash the brains and gore from the floor and to clean whatever chairs and tables remained intact. Then, Eurycleia continued, he told Telemachus to chop the maids into pieces with his sword. But my son, not my son, wanting to assert himself to his father and show that he knew better, he was at that age, hanged them all in a row from the ship's holster. Right after that, said Eurycleia, who could not disguise her gloating pleasure? Odysseus and Telemachus hacked off the ears and nose and hands and feet and genitals of Melethius, the evil goat herd, and threw them to the dogs, paying no attention to the poor man's agonised screams. They had to make an example of him, said Eurycleia, to discourage any further defections. But which maids? I cried, beginning to shed tears. Dear gods, which, which, dear god, which, which maids did they hang? Mistress, dear child, said Eurycleia, anticipating my displeasure. He wanted to kill them all. I had to choose some, otherwise he would have, all would have perished. Which ones? I said, trying to control my emotions. Only twelve, she faltered. The impertinent imper- ones. The ones who had been rude. The ones who used to thumb their nose at me. Melantho of the pretty cheeks and her cronies. That lot. They were notorious whores. The ones who had been raped, I said, the youngest, the most beautiful, my eyes and ears amongst the suitors, I did not add, my helpers during the long nights of the shroud, my snow-white geese, my thumb, my thrushes, my doves. It was my fault. I hadn't told her of my scheme. They let it go to their heads, said Eurycleia defensively. It wouldn't have done for King Odysseus to allow such impertinent girls to continue to serve in the palace. He could never have trusted them. Now come downstairs, dear child. Your husband is waiting to see you. What could I do? Lamentation would bring, wouldn't bring my lovely girls back to life. I bit my tongue. It's a wonder I had any tongue left. So frequently had I bitten it over the years. Dead is dead, I told myself. I'll say prayers and perform sacrifices for their souls but I'll have to do it in secret or Odysseus will suspect me as well. There could be a more sinister explanation. What if Eurycleia was aware of my agreement with the maids, of the spying on the suitors for me, of my orders to them to behave rebelliously? What if she singled them out and had them killed out of resentment of being excluded and the desire to retain her inside position with Odysseus? I haven't been able to confront her about it down here. She's got a hold of a dozen dead babies and is always busy tending to them. Happily for her, they will never grow up 
Whenever I approach and try to engage her in conversation, she says, later, my child, gracious me, I've got my hands full. Look at it, the itty pity and wuggle wuggle woo. So I'll never know. Chapter 24, The Chorus Line, an anthropology lecture, presented by the maids. What is it that our number, the number of the maids, the number 12, suggests to the educated mind? There are 12 apostles, there were 12 days of Christmas, yes, but there are 12 months, and what does the word month suggest to the educated mind? Yes, you sir, in the back, correct, months Month comes from moon, as everyone knows. Oh, it is no coincidence, no coincidence at all, that there were 12 of us, not 11 and not 13, and not the proverbial eight maids a-milking. For we are not simply maids. We were, were not merely slaves and drudges. Oh, no. Surely we had a higher function than that. Could it be that we were not the 12 maids, but the 12 maidens, the 12 moon maidens, companions of Artemis? virginal but deadly goddesses of the moon could it be that we were ritual sacrifices devoted priestesses doing our part first by indulging in organic orgastic fertility right to behavior with the suitors then purifying ourselves by washing ourselves in the blood of the slain male victims such heaps of them what an honor to the goddess and renewing our virginity as Artemis renewed hers by bathing in a spring dyed with the blood of Actaeon. We wouldn't have willingly sacrificed ourselves as was ne necessary, reenacting the dark of the moon phase in, in order that the whole cycle might begin again and the silvery new moon goddess rise once more. Why should Iphigenia be created with selflessness and devotion more than we? This reading of the events in question ties in, excuse the play on words, with the ship's holster from which we dangled. For the new moon is a boat. And then there's the bow that figures so prominently in the story, the curved old moon bow of Artemis, used to shot an arrow through 12 axe heads. 12. The arrow passed through the loops of their handles, the round moon-shaped loops. And the hanging itself, think dear educated minds of the significance of hanging above the earth up in the air connected to the moon governed by governed sea by an umbilical boat linked rope oh there are too many clues for you to miss it what's that sir you in the back yes correct the number of lunar months is indeed 13 so there ought to have been 13 of us therefore you say smugly we might add that our theory about ourselves is incorrect since we were only 12. But wait, there were in fact 13. The 13th was our high priestess, the incarnation of Artemis herself. She was none other than, yes, Queen Penelope. Thus, possibly, our rape and subsequent hanging represented the overthrow of a matrilineal moon cult by an incoming group of unsurpassed serping patriarchal father god worshipping barbarians the chief of them notably odysseus would then claim kingship by marrying the high priestess of our cult namely penelope no sir we deny that this theory is merely unfounded feminist feminist claptrap we can understand your reluctance to have such things brought out into the open 
rapes and murders are not pleasant subjects. But such overthrows most certainly took place all around the Mediterranean Sea, as excavations as prehistoric sites have demonstrated over the years. Surely those axes, so significantly not used as weapons in the ensuing slaughter, so significantly never explained in any satisfactory way by 3,000 years of commentary. Surely they must have been the double-bladed ritual, libraries, axes associated with the great mother cult among the Minoans, the axes used to lop off the head of the year king at the end of his term of 13 lunar months. For the rebelling year king to use her own bow to shoot an arrow through her own ritual life and death axes in order to demonstrate his power over her, what a dis discretion. Just as the patriarchal penis takes it upon itself to un unilaterally shoot through the, but we're getting away of ourselves here. In the pre-patriarchal scheme of things, there may have been a bow shooting contest, but it would have been properly conducted. He who won it would be declared ritual king for a year and would then be hanged. Remember the hanged man motif, which survives now only as a lowly tarot card? He would have had his genitals torn off as befits a male drone married to the queen bee. Both acts, the hanging and the genital tearing off, would have ensured the fertility of the crops but unsurping strongman Odysseus refused to die at the end of his rightful term. Greedy for prolonged life and power, he found substitutes. Genitals were indeed torn off, but they were not his. They belonged to the goat-head Melanthius. Hanging did indeed take place, but it was we, the twelve moon maidens, who did the swinging in his place. We could go on. Would you like to see some vase paintings? some carved goddess cult objects. No, never mind. Point being that you don't have to get too worked up about us, dear educated minds. You don't have to think of us as real girls, real flesh and blood, real pain, real injustice. That we might that might be too upsetting. Just discard the sordid part. Consider us as pure symbol. We're no more than real than money. Chapter twenty five heart of flint. I descended the staircase considering my choices. I pretend not to believe Eurycleia when she told me that it was Odysseus who killed the suitors. Perhaps this man was an imposter. I'd said, how would I know what Odysseus looked like now after 20 years? I was also wondering how I must seem to him. I'd been a very young woman when he'd sailed away. Now I was a matron. How could he fail to be disappointed? I decided to make him wait. I myself had waited long enough. Also, I would need time in order to fully disguise my true feelings about the unfortunate hanging of my 12 young maids. So when I entered the hall and saw him sitting there, I didn't say a thing. Telematches wasted no time. Almost immediately, he was scolding me for not giving a warmer welcome to his father. Flintly hearted, he called me scornfully. I could see he had a rosy little picture in his mind, the two of them sliding against, sliding against me, grown men together, two roosters in charge of the hen house. Of course, I wanted the best for him. He was my son. I hoped we would he would succeed as a political leader or a warrior or whatever he wanted to be. 
But at the moment, I wish there would be another Trojan War so I could send him off and get him out of my hair. Boys with their first beards can be a thorough pain in the neck. The hardness of my heart was a notion I was glad to foster. However, as it would reassure Odysseus to know, I hadn't been throwing myself into the arms of every man who turned up, claiming to be him. So I looked at him blankly and said it was too much for me to swallow. The idea that his, this dirty, blood-smeared vagabond was the same as my fine husband who had sailed away from me so beautifully dressed 20 years before. Odysseus grinned. He was looking forward to the big revelation scene, the part where I would say, it was you all along, what a terrific disguise, and throw my arms around his neck. Then he went off to take a much-needed bath. When he came back in clean clothes smelling a good deal better than when he'd gone, I couldn't resist teasing him one last time. I ordered Eurycleia to move our bed at the bed outside the bedroom of Odysseus to make, up for the to make it up for the stranger. You'll recall that one post of th this bed was carved from a tree still rooted in the ground. Nobody knew about it except Odysseus, myself, and the maids, maid Actorus from Sparta, who by that time was long dead. Assuming someone had cut through the chair's bedpost, Odysseus lost his temper at once. Only then did I relent and go through the business of recognising him. I shed a satisfactory number of tears and embraced him and claimed that he'd passed the bedpost test and that now I was convinced. And so we climbed into the very same bed where we'd spent a great many happy hours when we were first married. Before Helen took it into her head to run off with Paris, lighting the fires of war and bringing desolation to my house. I was glad it was dark by then, as the sh in the shadows we both appeared less wit wizened than we were. We're not spring chickens anymore, I said. That which we are, we, s we are, said Odysseus. After a little time had passed and we were feeling pleased with each other, we took up to our old habits of storytelling. Odysseus told me of his travels and difficulties, the nobler versions with the monsters and the goddesses rather than the more sordid ones with the innkeepers and the whores. He recounted the many lies he'd invented, the false names he'd given himself, telling the Cy Cyclops his name was no, no one was the, the cleverest of such tricks, though he'd spoiled it by boasting, and the fraudulent life's histories he concocted for himself, the better to conceal his identity and his intentions. In my turn, I related the tale of the suitors and my trick with the shroud of Laertes and my deceitful encouragings of the suitors and the skillful ways in which I had misdirected them and led them on and played them off against one another. Then he told me of how much he'd missed me and how he'd been filled with longing for me, even when enfolded in the white arms of goddesses. And I told him how very many tears I'd shed while waiting 20 years for his return and how ten tediously faithful I'd been and how I would never have been, have even so much as thought of betraying his gigantic bed with a wondrous bedpost by sleeping in it with any other man. The two of us were, by our own admission, proficient and shameless liars of long standing. It's a wonder either of us believed a word the other said, but we did. Or so we told each other. No sooner had Odysseus returned than he left again. He said that, much as he hated to tear himself away from me, he'd have to go adventuring again. He'd been told by the spirit of Seer, 
Tiresias, that he would have to purify himself by carrying an oar so far inland that the people there would mistake it for win winnowing fan. Only in that way could he rinse the blood of the suitors from himself, avoid their vengeful ghosts and their vengeful relatives, and pacify the anger from the sea god Poseidon, who was still furious with him for blinding his son, the Cyclops. It was like it was a likely story, but then all of his stories were likely. Chapter 26, The Chorus Line, The Trial of Odysseus as Videotaped by the Maids Attorney for the Defence, Your Honour, permit me to speak to the innocence of my client, Odysseus, a legendary hero of high repute, who stands before you accused of multiple murders. Was he or was he not justified in slaughtering by means of arrows and spears? We do not dispute the slaughters themselves or the weapons in question. Upwards of 120 well-born young men give or take a dozen, who, I must emphasise, had been eating up his food without his permission, annoying his wife and plotting to murder his son and usurp his throne. It has all been alleged to my respected colleague that Odysseus was not so justified since murdering these young men was a gross overreaction to the fact of their having played the gourmand a little too freely in his palace. Also, it is alleged that Odysseus and or his heirs or assigns had been offered material compensation for the missing constables and ought to have accepted this compensation peacefully. But this compensation was offered by the same young men who, despite many requests, had done nothing previously to curb their remarkable appetites or to defend Odysseus or to protect his family. They had shown no loyalty to him in his absence. On the contrary, so how dependable was their word? Could a reasonable man expect that they would never ever pay a single, pay a single ox of what they had promised? And let us consider the odds. 120, give or take a dozen to one, or, stretching a point, to four, because Odysseus did have compliance, as my colleague has termed them. That is, he had one barely grown relative and two servants untrained in warfare. What was to prevent these young men from pretending to enter into a settlement with Odysseus and leaping upon him one dark night when his guard was down and doing him to death? It is our contention that by seizing the only opportunity fate was likely to afford him, our generally esteemed client Odysseus was merely acting in self-defence. We therefore ask that you dismiss this case. Judge, I'm inclined to agree. Attorney for the defence. Thank you, Your Honour. Judge, what's that commotion in the back? Order, ladies. Stop making a spectacle of yourselves. Adjust your clothing. Take those ropes off your necks. Sit down. The maids, you've forgotten about us. What about our case? You can't let him off. He hanged us in cold blood, 12 of us, 12 young girls for nothing. Judge, two attorney for the defence. This is a new charge, strictly speaking. It ought to be dealt with in a separate trial, but as the two matters appear to be intimately connected, I'm prepared to hear arguments now. What do you have to say for your client? Attorney for the defence. He was acting within his rights, Your Honour. These were his slaves. Judge, nonetheless, he must have had some reason. Even slaves not, ought not to be killed at whim. 
What had these girls done that they deserved hanging? Attorney for defence. They'd had sex without permission. Attorney for the defence. With my client's enemies, Your Honour, the very ones who had designs on his wife, not to mention his life, chuckles at his witticism. Judge, I take it these were the youngest maids? Attorney for the defence. Well, naturally, they were the best looking and the most bettable, certainly, for the most part. The maids laugh bitterly. Judge, leaping through book, The Odyssey. It's written here in this book, a book we must need needs consult, as it is mainly main authority on the subject, although it has pronounced unethical tendencies and contains far too much sex and violence, in my opinion. It says right here, let me see, in book 22, that the maids were raped. The suitors raped them. Nobody stopped them from doing so. Also, the maids are described as having been hauled around by the suitors for their foul and or disgusting purposes. Your client knew all that. He is quoted as having said these things himself. Therefore, the maids were overpowered and they were almost completely unprotected. Is that correct? Attorney for the defence. I wasn't there, Your Honour. All of this took place some three or four thousand years before my time. Judge, I can see the problem. Call the witness, Penelope. Penelope, I was asleep, Your Honour. I was often asleep. I can tell you what they said afterwards. Judge, what who said? Penelope, the maids, Your Honour. Judge, they said they'd been raped? Penelope, well, yes, Your Honour, in effect. Judge, and did you believe them? Penelope, yes, Your Honour, that is, I tended to believe them. Judge, I understand they were frequently impertinent. Penelope, yes, Your Honour, but... Judge, but you did not punish them and they continued to work as your maids? Penelope, I knew them well, Your Honour. I was fond of them. I brought some of them up, you could say. They were like the daughters I'd never had. Starts to weep. I feel, felt so sorry for them, but most maids got raped sooner or later. A deplorable but common feature of palace life. It wasn't the fact of their being raped that told against them in the mind of Odysseus. It's that they were raped without permission. Judge chuckles. Excuse me, ma'am, but isn't that what rape is, without permission? Attorney for the defence. Without permission, the permission of their master, Your Honour. Judge. Oh, I see. But their master wasn't present. So in effect, these maids were forced to sleep with the suitors because if they'd resisted, they would have been raped anyway, and much more unpleasantly. Attorney for the defence. I don't see what bearing that has on the case. Judge, neither did your client, evidently, chuckles. However, your client's time times were not our times. Standards of behaviour were different then. It would be unfortunate if this regrettable but minor incident were allowed to stand as a blot on the otherwise exceedingly distinguished career. Also, I do not wish to be guilty of anachronism. Therefore, I must dismiss the case. The maids. We demand justice. We demand retribution. We invoke the law of blood guilt. We call upon the angry ones. A troop of twelve Erinus appeared. They have hair made of serpents, the heads of dogs and the wings of bats. They sniff the air. The maids. O angry ones, O furies, 
You are the our last hope. We implore you to inflict punishment and extract exact vengeance on our behalf. Be our defenders, we who had none in life. Smell out Odysseus wherever he goes, from one place to another, from one life to another. Whatever disguise he puts on, whatever shape he may take, hunt him down. Dog his footsteps on earth or in Hades, wherever he may take refuge, in songs and in plays, in, in terms and in theses in marginal notes and in appendices, appear to him in our form, our ruined forms, the forms of our pitiful corpses. Let him never be at rest. The Aeronius turned towards Odysseus, their red eyes flash, attorney for the defence. I call on grey-eyed Pallas Athene, a mortal daughter of Zeus, to defend property rights and the right of, the, of a man to be the master in his own house, and to spirit my client away in a cloud. Judge, what is going on? Order, order. This is a 21st century court of justice. You there, get down from the ceiling. Stop that barking and hissing. Madam, cover up your chest and pull down your spear. What is this cloud doing here? Where are the police? Where's the defendant? What? Where has everybody gone? Chapter 27, Home Life in Hades. I was looking in on your world the other night, making use of the eyes of the channeler who'd gone into a trance. Her client wanted to contact her dead boyfriend about whether she should sell her, their condonium, but they got me instead. When there's an opening, I frequently jump in to fill it. I don't get out as often as I'd like. Not that I mean to disparage my hosts, as, as it were, but still, it's amazing how the living keep on pestering the dead. From age to age, it hardly changes at all, though the methods vary. I can't say I miss Sib Sibyls much. Them and their got golden boughs hauling along this all sh sorts of upstarts to trip traips around down here wanting knowledge of the future and selling, upsetting the shades. But at least the Sibyls had some manners. The magicians and conjurers who came later were worse, though they did take the whole thing seriously. Today's bunch, however, are almost too trivial to merit any attention whatsoever. They want to hear about the stock market prices and world politics and their own health problems and such stupidities, in addition to what they want to converse with a lot of dead non-entities, we in this realm cannot be expected to know. Who is this Marilyn everyone is so keen on? Who is this Adolf? It's a waste of energy to spend time with these people and so exasperating. But it's only by peering through such limited keyholes that I'm able to keep track of Odysseus during those times he's not down here in his own familiar form. I suppose you know the rules. If we wish to, we can get ourselves reborn and have another try at life. But first we have to drink from the waters of forgetfulness, so our past lives will be wiped from our memories. Such is the theory, but like all theories, it's only a theory. The waters of forgetfulness don't always work the way they're supposed to. Lots of people remember everything. Some say there's more than one kind of water, that the waters of memory are also on tap. I wouldn't know myself. Helen has been more than a few ex on, on more than a few excursions. That's why she calls them my little excursions. 
I've been having such fun, she'll begin. Then she'll detail her latest conquests and fill me in on the changes in fashion. It was as though it was through her that I learned about patches and sunshades and bustles and high-heeled shoes and girdles and bikinis and aerobic exercises and body piercings and liposuction. Then she'll make a speech about how naughty she's been and how much uproar she's been causing and how many men she's ruined. Empires have fallen because of her, she's fond of saying. I understand the interpretation of the whole Trojan War episode has changed, I tell her, to take some wind out of her sails. Now they think you were just a myth. It was all about trade routes. That's what the scholars are saying. Oh, Penelope, you can't still be jealous, she says. Surely we can be friends now. Why don't you come along with me to the upper world next time I go? We could do a trip to Las Vegas, girls' night out. But I forgot, that's not your style. You'd rather play the, little, the faithful little wifey, what with the weaving and so on. Bad me, I could never do it. I'd die of boredom. But you're always such a homebody. She's right. I'll never drink the waters of forgetfulness. I can't see the point of it. No, I can't see the point, but I don't want to take the risk. My past life was fraught with many difficulties, but who's to say the next one wouldn't, wouldn't be worse? Even with my limited access, I can see that the world is just as dangerous as it was in my day, except that the misery and suffering are on a much wider scale. As for human nature, it's a, as tawdry as ever. None of this stops Odysseus. He'll drop in and out of here for a while. He'll act pleased to see me. He'll tell me home life with me was the only thing he ever really wanted, no matter what ravishing duties he's been falling into bed with or what wild adventures he'd been having. We'll take a peaceful stroll, snack on some aswaddle, tell the old stories. I'll hear the news of Telemachus. He's a member of parliament now. I'm so proud. And then when I'm starting to relax, when I'm feeling that I can forgive him for everything, he'll put me through and accept him with all of his faults. Then I'm starting to believe that this time he really means it. Off he goes again, making a beeline for the river Leith to be born again. He does mean it. He really does. He wants to be with me. He weeps when he says it. But then some force tears us apart. It's the maids. He sees them in the distance heading our way. They make him nervous. They make him restless. They cause him pain. They make him want to be anywhere and anyone else. He's been a French general. He's been a Mongolian invader. He's been a tycoon in America. He's been a headhunter in Borneo. He's been a film star, an inventor, an advertising man. It's always ended badly with a suicide or an ancient accident or a death in battle or an assassination and then he's back here again why can't you leave him alone i yell at the maids i have to yell because they won't let me go near them surely it's enough he did penance he said the prayers he got himself purified it's not enough for us they call what more do you want from him i asked by this time i'm crying just tell me but they only run away Run isn't quite accurate. Their legs don't move. They're still twitching. Feet don't touch the ground. Chapter 28. The Chorus Line. We're walking behind you. A love song. Yoo-hoo, Mr. Nobody, Mr. Nameless, Mr. Master of Illusion, Mr. Sleight of Hand. 
grandson of thieves and liars. We're here too, the ones without names, the ones without names, the ones with the shame stuck onto us by others, the ones pointed at, the ones fingered, the core girls, the bright-cheeked girls, the juicy jigglers, the cheeky young wigglers, the young blood scrubbers, 12 of us, 12 moon-shaped bums, 12 yummy mouths, 24 feather-pillowed tits, and best of all, 24 twitching feet. Remember us. Of course you do. We brought the water for you to wash your hands. We bathed your feet. We rinsed your laundry. We oiled your shoulders. We laughed at your jokes. We ground your corn. We turned down your cosy bed. You roped us in. You strung us up. You left us dangling like clothes on a line. What hijinks. What kicks. How virtuous you felt. How righteous. How purified. Now you've got rid of the plump, young, dirty girls inside your head. You should have buried us properly. You should have poured wine over us. You should have prayed for our forgiveness. Now you can't get rid of us. Wherever you go, in your life or your afterlife or any of your other lives, we can see through all of your disguises, the paths of day, the paths of darkness, whichever paths you take. We're right behind you, following you like a trail of smoke like a long tail, a tail made of girls, heavy as memory, light as air, 12 accusations, toes skimming the ground, hands tied behind our backs, tongues sticking out, eyes bulging, songs choked in our throats. Why did you murder us? What had we done to you that required our deaths? You never answered that. It was an act of grudging. It was an act of spite. It was an an honour killing. You who miss the thoughtfulness, miss the goodness, miss the godlike, miss the judge, look over your shoulder. Here we are, walking behind you, close, close by, close as a kiss, close as your own skin. We're the serving girls. We're here to serve you. We're here to serve you, right? We'll never leave you. We'll stick to you like your shadow, soft and relentless as glue. Pretty maids all in a row. Chapter 29, Envoy We had no voice, we had no name, we had no choice, we had one face, one face the same. We took the blame, it was not fair, but now we're here, we're all here too, the same as you. And now we follow you, we find you, now we call to you, to you, to wit, to woo, to wit, to woo, to woo. The maids sprout feathers and fly away as owls.